Uh, my name's Matt. I'm one of the leaders here at Hope City. It's my privilege to get to help us learn together from the Bible week after week. And this morning, uh, I need your help with a problem. So there's a, an ancient biblical city, and I really struggle to say its name correctly. So every time, I, I learned it this way. I think I must have read it, set it inside my head, and it got locked there, and I can't fix it. So there's a book in the Bible called Ephesians, right? Ephesians. And clearly that must have been written to a city called Ephesus. Ephesus, right? Now I say it, it sounds silly, but the correct pronunciation is Ephesus, not Ephesus, but Ephesus. So every time I say Ephesus, you all have to go, Ephesus. Let's practice it. Paul is in Ephesus. Thank you very much. Hopefully, we'll actually manage to get that consistently right this morning. Well, um, Peter painted a great picture of Ephesus for us last week. If you remember what he was talking about, it's one of the great cities of the Roman Empire. Perhaps as many as 300,000 people, which in this era, epic city, gigantic. It's got um, wide, busy streets. It has beautiful, huge libraries. It's got an open-air theater that could sit 25,000 people. Can you imagine that? Like... Before Jesus, there's a theater for 25,000 people. It's gigantic. But most importantly, it has this absolutely vast temple to a goddess called Artemis. Now, it's a, it's a population center. It's a financial center. Um, it's a religious center. It's an occult center. It's a magnet for the surrounding province, for the wider world even. And Peter last week was helping us install, um, explore how Paul, one of Jesus' first followers, a small, seemingly insignificant individual, could hope to make a difference in such a great city. How he pursued his mission there to share the hope that he had in Jesus. He shares the same mission with us 2,000 years on. Um, and he does it there through the power of words, through speaking, through arguing, through discussing. Those are the ways the Bible describes it. These are the actions attributed to him. Um, but it's not just any old words he's using. It's not just any message he brings. It is the word of the Lord. That is a message uh, about what's called the way in the Bible or the way of Jesus, the way Jesus wants us to live, the way Jesus has opened up for us to live. It's a message ultimately about the kingdom of God, the passage tells us. And the message, when it comes into this big city, Ephesus, got it right again, give me two marks so far, it confronts the powers that be in that city. So you've got this cult of Artemis, this giant temple. And uh, last week we heard about kind of extraordinary miracles. We heard about showdowns with evil powers. We heard about spells being burned, right? Here they are down on the bottom of that picture. They're burning their expensive curse spells. We were challenged to consider, is there something that we need to leave behind as we go to follow Jesus, like these new followers of Jesus had to leave behind that. Is there something we need to leave behind? And Peter was reminding us of this parable that Jesus tells of the mustard seed. Those are mustard seeds and how it grows from a small seed into a huge tree. What he's teaching us, Jesus there, is how the kingdom of God, that is the, the sphere in which he is honored as king, starts small. Right? Paul walks into town. There's the kingdom. It's a small sphere around him. Yet just like a seed, it's got within it this message, the power to grow and spread throughout the whole city. So in the end, the entire city and even the region beyond has heard it, we're told. Well, what I want us to do today 
We're, looking, we're still in the same setting. We're looking at something slightly different. I want us to focus on another sign of how the kingdom advances. And it's one that the next event we read about in Ephesus brings to the front. So we're going to read together the next section of our story. It's telling us about another major event in that city. And, and Sam's going to read with us. And I want you to think about how it is that the kingdom is expanding this morning. So come with me to Acts chapter 19, and we're going to start reading at verse 23. And that's page 1116, if you've got one of our blue Bibles. 1116, and Sam is going to come and read for us. Acts chapter 19, big 19 you're looking for, verse 23, a teeny tiny 23. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together, along with the workers in related trades, and said, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! The city clerk quietened the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there's no reason for it. After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. Thanks very much, Sam. 
Who knows the story of the boy who cried wolf? Um, I remember Mrs. McAndrews was the headmistress at my primary school, and she was a very scary lady indeed. And she told us this story in an assembly. It's a famous story. It's a very ancient one. Purportedly, it's one of Aesop's fables, so it's about 600 years um, before Jesus. Here's a, here's a poetic retelling from the 1900s that I thought was really quite nice. A shepherd boy beside a stream. The wolf, the wolf, was wont to scream. And when the villagers appeared, he'd laugh and call them silly ears. A wolf at last came down the steep. The wolf, the wolf, my legs, my sheep. The creature had a jolly feast, quite undisturbed on boy and beast. (laughs) Plenty of people around us today we might accuse of crying wolf like that, like enjoying making a fuss to get people to pay attention so often that maybe if there's a real problem later, we won't pay attention to it, raising the alarm again and again over things that aren't really that alarming or nothing at all, really. What about these metal workers that we're reading about in Ephesus? Are they just crying wolf? This new guy in town, Paul, the place is on fire. He's going to destroy everything, our business, our good name, our temple's renown, our goddess's honor, the sky is falling. One guy, seriously, with a strange message from another land, a short, wordy, often confusing guy. Really? These are big things they're suggesting that he might take down in verse 27. We break it out, right? What are the dangers? There's a major line of business in the city. Think about finance in Edinburgh, right? Imagine some major line of business being threatened. There's a key civic building. Well, there's the key civic building. This temple they're talking about is a world wonder temple. Could Could Paul really change that? There's the dominant cult of the city. I don't know what you'd think of as the the dominant cult of Edinburgh. What's the most common worldview, the most widely held belief? Could one person possibly change that? Surely the metal workers are just crying wolf. But but no, as as it turns out, They are better prophets than probably even they imagined they would be because the the, the elements they fret about, the elements they feed to the mob to start this riot, they're all going to actually come to pass. This trade is, in fact, going to lose its good name. Anybody heard people speaking approvingly of the metal workers of Ephesus or their silver shrines recently? Do you know, amongst all the things we've found, we've not found a silver shrine from Ephesus. What do we think today of those people who pedal religious trinkets and try and sell them to tourists and pilgrims. What about that? That that huge temple, one of the seven wonders of the world, what's going to happen to that? Discredited? Worse than that, totally destroyed. Like Peter said last week, it's just this pillar in a swamp today, and it's not even a pillar from the temple. That's some other pillar they put in the same swamp as the temple. And Artemis, is Artemis going to be robbed of her divine majesty? Well, I don't know how familiar you are with Artemis worship in our modern world. It doesn't really sit high on the league table, does it, of world religions today? I bet it's behind Jedi on our most recent census. The metal workers were right. The, the official who quelled the riot, the one calming the city down, he was quite wrong. Doesn't all the world know the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and her image that fell from heaven? Well, no. Ask me three weeks ago, I had no idea. Wouldn't have labeled Ephesus a great religious center at all. 
Shout all you want for people. You can shout for two hours in unison if that really makes you feel any better. But change is coming anyway. Even a riot's not going to stop it. Resistance is futile would be the correct phrase to use there. A riot can't stop what's happening. A a mob won't change what's happening. So, So what will? What does? I want us to think today about what could possibly change a city. What would turn that renowned city of Ephesus, the renowned cult of Artemis, the world wonder temple, the powerful metal workers business upside down? What could bring to nothing a worldview so dominant nobody even questioned it? It drove everything and everyone in the city. If you wanted to change a city, if you wanted to change a whole city, like say you want to change our city, well, what would you try? What about a a good old protest? Does Paul put together an army of disciples wearing placards, slogans like gods aren't made of gold? It's quite catchy. Gods aren't made of gold. Though they were silver shrines, I know. Um, Artemis is artificial. I thought that was quite good. I would would wear that t-shirt. Or or if he's more modern, what he would probably do is just glue himself to the temple door, right? Because that's the the modern way of going about this, change things. A, A big obstructive protest right? Followed by lots of hand wringing among the powers that be. Something must be done about this terrible crisis. And then there's probably some sort of new law that begins to force change uh, in the city. But that's not how Paul changes this city. In fact, the protest comes from the other side, from these metal workers. So maybe then it's more of a showdown at the temple at dawn. I couldn't get one with a tumbleweed, but you get the sense, right? It wouldn't be the first time in the Bible that you get some sort of showdown. Think of Moses taking on the Egyptian magicians. Think of Elijah taking on the prophets of Baal, just one of those great stories in the Bible. He could lay down an ultimatum to this cult of Artemis at the heart of the trouble in this city. Prayers at dawn outside the temple. But that's not what changes the city here either. Paul doesn't even go head to head with the crowds when his opponents are rioting. And from verse 37, it seems like there's not even like a blasphemy charge against the disciples. So it's not that sort of showdown. So what is it that changes the city? Well, this metal worker Demetrius, who's at the head of the mob, has grasped something. Here's how he sees the problem. He says, the fellow Paul has convinced And led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. How is Paul going about changing the city? Well, he's changed the minds of a bunch of people, a large number of people in Ephesus and even the the wider province. He's convinced them that gods we make are no gods at all. That the metal workers trade is in empty statues, not powerful things. But it's not simply information or argument, uh, an idea that has changed the city there. Demetrius's charge here is truth. This is one of the things that Paul is saying, but it's not the whole truth. Uh, like we saw last week, what changes this city is the powerful word of the Lord. It's the message of the Lord. This is the message that Paul's carried with him here. He's planted in Ephesus when he was passing through the first time. Now he's back. He's sowing. He's cultivating. He's nurturing this message. Remember at the end of the last section we read last week, in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. That message is not just information. 
It's not just information, but it's a, a transformative message. And what I mean by that is it's not just kind of facts that we add to our mental data banks that change our actions. Oh, okay. Now, now I know that things sum up differently. The conclusion answer is be kind rather than be mean. Oh, oh, I hadn't thought of that. You know, logical processing. Like we humans are just rational kind of computer beings who run a, a program like learning. It really hurts when I stand on a rake, so I shall not be standing on rakes anymore. That's what Demetrius is thinking. He's thinking people are being fed information. God's made by human hands or no gods at all. And then they just go and process that. They're like, oh, yeah, hadn't thought of that. They're not. And then they stop buying his goods. They stop buying his gods. But the message is bigger. Paul's message is bigger than this. It is that Messiah, that is the long-promised deliverer of God's people, is God himself, and he's going to enter into the world he's created as Jesus, and he's going to build his kingdom inside it. And that's a kingdom that's built on information, yes, but really it's built on transformation. The chrysalis where the lonely caterpillar transforms into a butterfly. Maybe a helpful picture for what faith is like. God sends his spirit into our hearts as this agent of transformation, like we were talking about two weeks ago. When we first came to Ephesus, we met those disciples who'd not even heard there was a Holy Spirit. This is how you change a city. You plant God's kingdom within it, and this kingdom is a kingdom that's built on genuine transformation of people. Remember last week, Peter was teaching us from Jesus' parable of the mustard seed, a tiny seed to a huge tree. Right next to that parable, Jesus tells us another one that describes his kingdom. Matthew 13, 33. He told them still another parable. After the mustard seed in the tree, he told them the kingdom of heaven is like yeast. That woman took and mixed into about 30 kilograms of flour until it worked through all the dough. That's a, a very compact parable. You can say it very quickly, right? But it's got important things to teach us about the kingdom of heaven, about the kingdom of God. And our modern translation is trying to be really helpful here. And it put modern words in and removed the old words. But as a result, it's lost something that would have been totally obvious to Jesus' original audience, a bit harder for us. In those days, when you're making bread, what you didn't do is get yeast in your little sachet or your packet. And mix that into the flour with some water to activate it. In those days, they used what was called leaven that is kind of leftover, really, from the previous day's bread. It's activated dough, dough that's already got yeast in it. You heard of a sourdough starter? Very trendy. Well, a sourdough starter is kind of like leaven, basically. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Some dough that's already active. Well, when you take that little bit of dough that's already active and you mix it in to a huge new bowl of dough. Did you see there in the parable? It's 30 kilograms of flour. Who knows how much 30 kilograms of flour is going to look like on your kitchen surface? It's massive, right? Can you imagine a bowl with 30 kilograms of flour in it? Can you imagine a sack weighing 30 kilograms, right? Big heavy sack is 20 kilos. So a giant sack of flour, huge sack. It's got a little bit of dough, starter dough. It's going to mix it in. 
How does it work? Well, I hope the woman's got a really big bowl, got strong arms to manage 30 kilos. But what happens is you take this little bit of starter, this little bit of leaven, and as it comes into contact with dough that's not yet activated, what it does is it begins to transform the dough around it, to transform it into more leaven. And then what that leaven does is it's in contact with more dough, so it transforms more dough around it into more leaven. And what does that leaven do? It's in contact with more dough that it transforms into more leaven around it. That is how this message transforms cities. That's how it transforms cultures. That's how it turns Ephesus upside down. Christianity transforms cultures because Christianity transforms people. It's not just true in ancient times that Christianity can transform people. Think about Scotland. Think about Scottish culture in the Middle Ages around the Reformation. We have one of the leading educational systems in the world. Our culture of education as a nation was transformed. Why? So every child could read the Bible for themselves. Our systems for care and for welfare of the poor flowed out of a nation hearing the call of Christ to love our neighbor. Chalmers at the heart of some of those reforms. In fact, transformational Christianity has so radically reshaped our Western culture, giving us values, defaults, assumptions that are different from the world before us and the world around us, um, that we, we, we don't even notice ideas that seem obvious to us, like the inherent and equal value of humans. Well, the most learned Greeks, Aristotle, Plato, would have scoffed at that idea. That's a ridiculous idea. There's an obvious hierarchy of value. Free men are at the top. There are people who rule and people who should be ruled. We're not equal. That's a silly idea. That's what they would have thought. Or what about India? India has a three-millennia-old system of castes. It's a different but equally clear value hierarchy among people that does not at all agree that all people are equal value. It's still got significant influence today. I came across this while I was reading about it. 20% of people in North India feel like in the past 12 months, they've been actively discriminated against because of their caste. 20%. Like that's hardly something that's completely in the past and gone and forgotten. And it's not just um, the equal value of people. There's so many aspects of our culture, really, that flow out of the transformative power of Christianity, like compassion, um, consent. The, the, the list goes on. If you want to learn more, um, there's this book, uh, which I handily brought with me, called The Air We Breathe, uh, by a guy called Glenn Scrivener, which is a hard name to spell. The Air We Breathe. And this talks about how some of the cultural values in our modern culture today that we treasure the most highly are, in fact, Christian values. And if you take the Christianity out of the culture, you've got no foundation for those values. That's how Ephesus was turned upside down. Christianity transforms culture because Christianity transforms people who transform people who transform people. I'm getting a little bit off topic. That's how Ephesus was turned upside down. As we draw towards a close, what I wanted to ask is the question we try and ask every week. Well, this is all very interesting, nice theoretical assumptions, Um, but what does this mean for you and me? What does it mean for us here and now, today? So, So what? This is interesting. Well, I've got two big things that I think this is a so what for us here today. And the first one is that God is still in the business of transforming lives. 
Now, if you don't know this for yourself yet, if you don't know this as a truth that is meaningful to you, I'm so glad you're here this morning. And if you came with somebody who'd call themselves a Christian, here's my idea for you. Ask them, is this true? Does Christianity really transform? Are you any different at all as a result of God at work in you? Show me, tell me what the differences it's made in your life. Watch them. See if it is real. Are they just like everyone else, or have they been changed? Is there anything different about them? Do they see things differently? Do they have hope? They have a reason for that hope. Now, if you didn't come here with your friend, if you're just uh, with us online or watching a recording afterwards, then take your brave pills and ask whoever's sitting next to you, or drop us an email, and we'd love to talk to you about what difference is it that God really makes in our lives today great way to start a conversation. Um, If there wasn't such a power, how do you explain the impact Christianity had on the ancient world? How do you explain the impact that it still has on our world today? If there really is a transforming power, well, don't you want to experience it? Who doesn't want to be more than they are? Isn't exploring whether that's real or not worth a little bit of your time, even if it's awkward, even if it requires an open conversation? And maybe you're on the other side of that fence. Maybe you do know this for yourself. Maybe you do know that there is a God who comes to live within us and transforms us by the power of his spirit. If you know that today, can I encourage you to think about how you could talk about that more? You're part of God's story. You're part of his testimony to the world. And it can feel odd to brag about things that have happened. But when we give God the credit for being the one who makes those changes within us, then we have a story to share. The transformation he's worked in our life is a story to share. We're not who we used to be. So I'd love us to practice talking about that. And that is not, by the way, bragging about how nice we are. It's about bragging about how, even though I'm not that nice, I'm not what I was. I'm not that nice yet, but I'm not what I was. I have been changed. God has done something. There are ways I've changed. There's ways I've grown. God is still in the business of transforming lives. And this is the truth that is the foundation of our hope for the city. And I guess that's where I want to go second. I want us to see and believe that kingdom transformation is still contagious. Like that leaven in the dough. What a picture Jesus has given us. This is why as a church we talk all the time about how each of us has got a part to play in the mission of Jesus in the city. Because we are... That leaven, that's our belief. We are the contagious kingdom agents within our city. So our call is to live in contact, to live alongside the world around us, to live in the midst of a world that doesn't know or care or listen, to live in contact so this transforming power of the kingdom might spread. And our hope is the kingdom won't end with us, that we're not always going to be the front line, right? The last piece of leaven, the border, Our hope is that this transforming kingdom of God is still contagious. It'll continue to grow through us. If it had the potency and the power to transform the ancient city of Ephesus, it has the potency and the power to transform this great city of Edinburgh. Yeah, it's a city dominated by other gods. It's ruled by different worldviews. It's ruled by different worldviews. It's profited from by other groups. It's a city that might seem impossible or foolish to think about changing, but God can transform this city because God's still in this business of transforming lives, and that kingdom transformation is contagious. 
You believe that? Believe that God's transformation work in you is contagious. It's not just in the COVID sense. I want to give you a moment to reflect as we talked about these ideas and think, what is God saying to you this morning? What's the challenge you're feeling this morning? Do you need to ask people around you, how has your life been changed? Do you need to tell people around you, this is how my life has been changed? Do you need to seek God for more change in your life so there's more evidence of transformation for the world around? A moment to reflect and then I'll pray. Father God, in some way these things are um, easy to believe. It makes total sense that having the Spirit of God alive and at work inside us would transform our lives. It makes total sense that that would be an attractive and a contagious thing in this world. And yeah, I'm sure many of us don't feel that different, don't feel like we've got much power at work within us, don't feel like we have much difference to show the world around us. Don't feel like we've seen that contagious impact of transformation. But Lord, thank you for this story that reminds us it happens, that you can turn a whole city upside down, that you can overturn a wonder of the world, a central worldview, a powerful group. So I pray, um, Lord, Would you be at work in us by your spirit transforming? Might we hear and follow your call to change empowered by your spirit? And as we pursue and enjoy that change, might we be bold in showing and speaking about it? So that your kingdom might multiply and your righteousness peace and joy might transform our world for Jesus' sake.